Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Before Mike Paul became a writer, he was a dentist and a licensed commercial pilot. Hanging out in a small Bay Area airport coffee shop inspired his first book, Tales from the Sky Kitchen Cafe. He then wrote a trilogy featuring a dentist as the protagonist and mystery solver. In 2021, Mike Paul introduced a spy thriller, Missing, and has now written a second book in this series, She's Missing. Mike Paul, welcome. Thanks, Nancy. Nice to chat with you again. Well, I would like for you to introduce the character by reading the first couple of pages in your new book. Okay. The wind whistled across the waters of the Potomac, carrying a combination of freezing rain and light snow. Coop glanced at the windows of his fourth floor office. They were rattling and creaking as the sleet pounded against the bulletproof glass. He ignored the sounds and reread the memo sent from the director of national intelligence to both the agency director and to him, the deputy director. He zeroed in on the last few words. In Israel, the penalty for espionage or for aiding and abetting the enemy is imprisonment for life. Coop's cell phone vibrated. He picked it up to check the caller ID and he felt his stomach turn a somersault. Every day for two years now, he had thumbed through his missed calls, hoping he would find one from her. The last time he talked to his fellow agent and best friend was before she saved his life and disappeared to Zurich with the $9 million the two of them had recovered from an operation in the Middle East. He didn't care about the cash. It was dirty money that only a few people knew about. And besides, it didn't really belong to anyone, let alone the government. What he did care about was her and how she was getting along in Zurich with her new life and her new domestic partner. He slid his finger across the iPhone screen and put it to his ear. Zoe, is that you? There was a pause and then a voice said, no, no, it is not. Well, who is it then? Uh, this is her partner, Lara, Lara Graf. Where's Zoe? Is she all right? There was another pause, much longer than the first. That is why I am calling. We're on a holiday in Cyprus and she, she disappeared. What do you mean disappeared? We checked into the hotel in Limassol and Zoe went down to the lobby to talk to the concierge about restaurants. I unpacked and put a few things away and stepped into the shower. When I got out, I realized she'd be gone for over an hour and I became concerned, so I called down. The concierge said she never showed up. I did not know who to call. I, I knew you were in her phone, so I just, I, I didn't know who. It's okay, you did the right thing. If you don't hear from her in the next hour, call me back. Should I call the police? No, no, don't do that. This may be something way beyond what the police can handle. Just call me back if you don't hear from her. He closed his phone and reread the memo. Coop didn't believe in coincidence. In his job, he couldn't afford to. The fact that the National Intelligence Memo and Zoe's sudden disappearance surfaced on the same day gave him a queasy feeling in his gut. And when he followed his gut, he was usually right. This is local author Mike Paul reading from his newest book, She's Missing. And there's a lot of information in those first few paragraphs. For example, the title of the book, She's Missing. And we find out in those first few paragraphs who it is that's missing. And this is a friend of his named Zoe. And he's wondering if she's okay. We also learn that he where he's located because his office overlooks the Potomac. So he's in Washington, D.C., we find out what his job is. He's the deputy director of national intelligence. And 
he is uh, inter- he lets us know uh, that there's a problem. And the last uh, time this person that, who's missing was known, uh, whereabouts were known, was Cyprus. So there's so much information about the Middle East in your book, Mike. I wondered how, if you, when you researched for this book, did you actually go to Cyprus, for example? No, I, you know, I think we talked about this, Nancy, uh, last time uh, when we discussed the first book. And, you know, the greatest uh, encyclopedia and source of information now is really at our computer, and it's called Google. And uh, <laughs> so my uh, my uh, research is all done through Google. And, uh, of course, it's my goal to make it sound like uh, I've been there and that the character is there. But no, I've never been to Cyprus. Well, you uh, introduce us to this character named Coop, and we find out that's part of his last name, Cooper. And then you also uh, introduce his wife uh, a couple of paragraphs later, and she's a scrub nurse. So would you read us that section uh, introducing his, or reintroducing for people who read the first book, Missing? So would you read that section uh, about his wife? Sure, sure. His wife was the scrub nurse for a complex back surgery that had begun three hours earlier. He figured by the time he got to the hospital, she would either be changing her clothes or winding down from a stressful morning. The Virginia Hospital Center was just across the 14th Street Bridge in Arlington. The traffic on I-395 was moving faster than usual, and Coop pulled into the hospital parking lot within 15 minutes after leaving the Capitol. He headed straight to the surgical post-op ward of the third floor. A gray-haired woman dressed in civilian clothes who fit the description of a hospital volunteer looked up from behind a Formica counter. May I help you? Coop took out his wallet, opened it so his gold shield was visible and held it where the woman could see it. Craig Cooper, Frank Cooper's husband. Is she out of surgery yet? The woman held up a finger on her left hand while she typed in a computer with her right. Yes, it looks like they're finished 20 minutes ago. The team is probably in the lounge. You can check it out if you'd like. She pointed to a set of double doors. The doors opened automatically and Coop stepped into the hallway where he was hit by that unmistakable telltale hospital smell, a noxious combination of medicaments, Clorox and air freshener. It triggered memories of when he had gone through surgery for the removal of a bullet he had taken in his back while chasing through the Middle East in search of Saddam's gold. The door to the lounge was ajar. He peeked his head around it and saw that Fran was having coffee with two other nurses. Hey, Fran, he said. She looked up. Coop, is everything all right? Well, sorta. Maybe we can talk in private somewhere. The other two nurses stepped away from the table and started for the door. We were just leaving, one said. They let the door close behind them. What is it, Fran asked. I think Zoe's in trouble. What kind of trouble? I don't know, but she disappeared from her hotel in Cyprus. Her partner, Lara, called me. Fran leaned back uneasily, her mouth forming a pensive frown. How long ago? Coop looked at the wall clock over the sink that was synchronized to the second with all the other clocks in the hospital. I'm guessing about three hours by now. That's not very long. Coop took the memo from his pocket and handed it to her. She read it and handed it back. So you think this is related? Coop stepped to the window and looked off into space. After a minute or two, he turned back toward Fran. Yeah, I'd bet on it. What are you going to do? Coop bit at his lower lip. I'm not sure. You want to go to Cyprus, don't you? Coop took Fran's hands in his. I promised you and Josh I'd never go back in the field. I can't break that promise. Coop, that was before Zoe saved your life. If it weren't for her, you'd have been dead by a sniper's bullet two years ago. You owe her. I owe her. You have no choice. You have to go. 
I know, but I can't renege on my promise to Josh. I let him down before, and I don't want to do it again. Look, Coop, Josh has to know he owes Zoe, too. He's a teenager now. It's time for him to understand what you do and why you do it. Yeah, you're right, but, but what? Fran, I'm a couple of years shy of 60, and I haven't been in the field for two years. Fran smirked. After 30 years of the field, you don't forget how to be a spy because of a couple of years behind a desk. This is uh, author Mike Paul. He has written spy thrillers, and his latest is She's Missing. And he was just reading from his new book, She's Missing. And we learn a lot in that short uh, section, Mike. We learn about his wife. We learn that um, he owes this person who's missing his life. She saved his life. And the picture you paint and the vocabulary uh, of your characters makes it seem so real. I can just really see this as I'm reading along. I'm reading at the pace of conversation and seeing this movie playing in my head of this husband and wife as they're talking about. Uh, what he wants to do, and she's encouraging him to do that. What uh, observations do you have about that section? Well, uh, it's interesting. If you've read the first book uh, before this book, you realize that Coop and Fran uh, had some marital issues when he went away uh, uh, earlier in the first book, and he was almost killed. So that's why he made this promise that he would never go back in the field again. And obviously here by this uh, passage, Fran is standing behind him and his decision, but he's concerned about his relationship with his son. Uh, of course, is uh, assuring him that it's gonna be all right. And she's essentially giving him permission to go and find out what happened to his friend and co-agent uh, Zoe Fields. So off he goes, and let's skip over now to uh, a section where he meets this guy called Mizrahi, and he's snipping off the end of a cigar and preparing to smoke this cigar. Would you set up that scene for us? Sure. So Coop uh, makes his way um, to uh, Israel because he finds out, and even the, the first directive gave him an idea, that Zoe is somehow in trouble with the uh, Israeli government. And uh, Coop feels that if he goes and meets with the director of the intelligence agency, the, the Mossad, that uh, maybe he can straighten things out and find out why Israel is so upset with Zoe, and maybe he can find Zoe in, in uh, so doing. So the director of the Mossad is a fellow named um, uh, Avraham Mizrahi, and he is sitting in the uh, Mizrahi's office, and they're having a conversation. Would you pick up there uh, when uh, Mizrahi curled his lips and let out a smoke ring? So we can see the two of them sitting there, and Mizrahi with the Mossad is uh, just blowing a smoke ring. And I know what you want to think, but I have evidence to the contrary. And so would you pick up there? Uh, yeah, Mizrahi curled his lips and let out a smoke ring. I know what you want to think, but I have evidence to the contrary. Coop says, let's see it. Mizrahi picked up a house phone. Please send in some food and a brandy. And he looked at Coop. Uh, Jack Daniels, no ice. The director finished his order, hung up the phone, and uh, stepped to his desk. He opened the top drawer and took out a document. What does this look like to you? He handed Coop the paper. Coop read it from top to bottom. Looks like a receipt for $9 million. And who wired the money? Zoe Fields. And who received that money? Coop ran his finger down the printed lines. Looks uh, like some agency in Tehran. A smug expression took over Mizrahi's face. The last time I checked, Tehran was the capital of Iran. Coop tossed the paper back to him. You've been in this business long enough to know that things aren't always as they seem. 
That is true, Mr. Cooper, but these things don't seem very good. Your friend, Ms. Fields, agreed to send that money to me here in Israel, but instead she sent it to Iran. Coop didn't answer. He just sat and watched Ms. Rahi blow smoke rings. A knock came from the door. Bring it in, the director said in a loud voice. The door opened, and a woman with long, frizzy black hair and overdone makeup entered, pushing a food cart full of food and drinks. She turned her back to Coop as she transferred the plates and glasses to a coffee table. Ms. Rahi rested his cigar in the ashtray. Thank you, Ms. Shira. Shira Rubin, sir. Thank you, Shira. The woman turned to leave. She was face to face with Coop, and eye contact was unavoidable. Even with the disguise, he'd know those eyes anywhere. So in true thriller fashion, you end that chapter and, uh, with a mysterious note, <laughs> Mike, that uh, he recognizes this person even though she is in disguise. Now, when you are writing this book, you include a lot of details, and so it it's rather fast-paced. Uh, something's happening regularly, and um, I became a fan. I visited my brother, who watched, um, say, Jack Ryan spy thrillers, and I found these things so interesting, I actually binged watched them, and so you're um book reminds me of those kind of spy thrillers. Did you draw inspiration from any source like that for your books? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love them all. Um, and um, the, uh, I, I've, uh, you notice there's a lot of dialogue here in, mm -hmm. uh, in most of my books. And um, there's a writer, Nelson DeMille, who loves to use dialogue to explain what's going on. And uh, his are uh, not exactly spy thrillers. He has written a few. Uh, there are detective mysteries combined with, with spy thrillers. And I just love the way that he is able to uh, tell a story through the dialogue. So that's probably the inspiration that, uh, that pushed me in this direction and this style of writing. My guest is Mike Paul, who has a new mystery thriller. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Mike Paul, who has a new spy thriller in his series. The title of the new book is She's Missing. Well, something else that I enjoyed was um, uh, like a food item that I wasn't familiar with, and that was shakshuka. And uh, how did you find out about that particular Middle Eastern dish? Actually, the uh, Middle East claims it, but I learned it's all over. Yeah, right. Um, my my wife told me about shakshuka, oh, maybe a year before I even started writing this book. And we were just talking about the fact that her sister had come home from Israel and had this great dish, uh, shakshuka. And she explained it to me, and I just kind of tucked it away. And then when I realized there was a chance to actually use that knowledge, 
uh, I went ahead and guess where I went? I went to Google. <laughs> As did I, because I wanted to see pictures of this dish. <laughs> and I found out there were a, a million recipes for a shakshuka. And so I, uh, I kind of made up my own and, uh, and went ahead and, and described what it was. Yeah, it involves uh, like a tomato sauce and poached eggs inside this dish. It looked very, it looked quite yummy, actually. Now, there was another uh, item that you mentioned, because I like to have, I happen to like the flavor of anise. But when it comes up, um, it's, people may be familiar with ouzo, uh, this Greek beverage. Uh, but this, you mentioned Arak, A-R-A-K. And how did your characters respond to this beverage? So uh, it turns out uh, when I was researching that Iraq, again, not to be confused with Iraq country, country it's A-R-A-K, is a very, very popular drink in, um, in the Middle East. Um, uh, even in, the, uh, you know, I reference it when they're in Israel. I reference it when they're in um, uh, Beirut, in, in Lebanon. Um, I think I re reference it again uh, when they're either in, uh, I think it's Iraq or Iran. So um, I just wanted to make a point that, uh, you know, this is a popular drink of that part of the world. And of course, reading it here in the United States, most of us had never even heard of it. So I just thought it was an interesting thing to kind of work into the story. Yeah, you have the waiter uh, bring these two glasses and a small carafe filled with amber liquid on the table. Arak, sir, very strong. He filled the glasses. So um, <laughs> when they drank it, Zoe made a face, and she happens to hate licorice, so she wasn't too crazy about that. But then there was another item, uh, a rather um, unusual, maybe it's a word, kind of tea, kimon. K-E-E-M-U-N. Have you ever had that particular kind of tea yourself? No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, you mentioned tea. If you've read, well, you read this book and the previous book, you realize that Coop hates tea. He's a <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and uh, this is kind of me projecting myself into the character because I hate tea also <laughs> and I'm a coffee guy so it's real easy for me to uh, describe different teas and then have Coop uh, stick up his nose at it. <laughs> well another detail that um, well a lot of the information about airplanes I know how you came by that information because you were licensed to pilot yourself. So I know you know your airplanes, but you mentioned something that the airport in Amman gets $640 a day to park this airplane. And there's a character CT who flies a Gulf stream and the, it ends up, he didn't have to pay that much uh, perhaps, but um, is that, that must be fact-based that uh, Amman would get $640 a day just to park a, an airplane? Well, of course, this is a jet airplane. It's not a little Cessna single engine. And um, I have to admit, I may have embellished that a little <laughs> so that uh, uh, pique your interest. And uh, I guess it worked, Nancy, because <laughs> it piqued yours. <laughs> Yeah, but they have the resources. They have money. When something comes up that's expensive, they don't blink an eye. They just whip out the money or acquire it however they might need to, um, these characters that do. For example, at one point, uh, he needs to fly his plane into an area that his, his plane would not be allowed into as it was. But he found out there is such an entity as a UN humanitarian air force, and does that really exist? It must. Yeah, that exists. Um, what brought that about is um, Coop and Zoe have to get into Iraq because they uh, are making their way uh, to Iran, and of course, Iran is totally forbidden uh, for Americans, and it's a real. Um, uh, escapade uh, as you read the book on how they get in and out of Iran. But first they have to get to Iraq because that is the jump off point. Iraq shares a border with Iran. But the problem is uh, this 
takes place in 2011. And uh, there's no uh, commercial air service into Iraq. And um, United States planes just can't fly in and out of Iraq like, like they could to Denver, Colorado or somewhere. So um, Coop has to find a way to disguise um, the uh, plane that he's using from the, um, from the spy agency. And so he remembers that there was a, a, an agency that was allowed to fly in and out of uh, Iraq. And that was a United Nations program uh, where they were giving humanitarian uh, service to the Iraqis. So he disguised their plane as uh, uh, one of the UN planes and he flew in under that disguise. So that is a real uh, organization. Well, now you say they disguise the airplane. I mean, airplane—it's a pretty big <laughs> item. How can they dis? How did they disguise that airplane? Okay, so Coop had his uh, his pilot, uh, a character named CT, uh, check out what these UN airplanes that were flying in Iraq uh, looked like, and they were basically just white jets. And they had two letters on them, and the letters said UN. So, uh, as luck would have it, uh, the jet that Coop's uh, pilot was flying was also just a plain white jet. And he managed to uh, get some numbers and cover up the, uh, the signs on the, uh, the uh, jet that Coop was using and put the letters UN on. And then when they went in, they acted as if they were members of the UN. And there's a kind of a cute sequence when they get off of the air, airplane in uh, in Baghdad, and uh, and uh, a kind of a lecherous uh, <laughs> guard uh, is making eyes at Zoe, and she leads him along because she knows that this is the quickest way to get through the uh, the inspection, and it worked, and they they make their way through. Well, one way when they were disguising this airplane and they need to attach the letters UN and Coop said, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to attach these letters? And the reply was with aluminum tape and it costs $700 a roll. Now, is that something you researched, Mike? Does that really exist? Well, that's real. No, I knew about that. That's called speed tape. Um when an airplane has a little rip in the skin, and even when I was flying, uh, speed tape was used on smaller airplanes also, uh, but it's actually used on jets, believe it or not, that you may get on and fly across the country on. If there's a little ding in the skin, they can actually apply the speed tape that um, will not tear or rip off or come off uh, uh, anywhere up to somewhere around 600 miles an hour. So uh, it can be used on airplanes for just quick fixes that are that don't entail safety, but uh, have to be used. And speed tape is is common in um, in the flying industry. It is that expensive, by the way. And they were pleased to get it for only $500 a roll. Yeah, that was a deal. Yeah, so uh, being a pilot is a pretty expensive uh, proposition or hobby. Now, um, another thing I enjoyed was uh, your references to, say, local color. For example, I think most of us know about burqas that women have to wear. But you tell us about uh, a, more of a distinction and this is later in your book when uh, Zoe and Coop have to wear clothes so they won't be noticed, picked out, and, and they will look like the rest of the population. So this tailor makes them some clothes, and Zoe puts on these clothes. And what was uh, what were these clothes like? Her clothes like? Okay, so just real quickly. Yeah, if you would read that section. They have section, to get huh? across the border from Iraq to Iran, so they have to disguise as if they are. Uh, rich uh, local people. So they are, like you say, getting fitted for these outfits. And I'll just read uh, a little bit of how Zoe was being fitted. Her head was covered in a black veil with only an opening for her eyes. The rest of her body, head to foot, was covered by a loose black garment. Quite stylish for a burqa, Coop said. Yasser, that's the uh, tailor, 
Yasser interrupted. This is not really a burqa. A burqa also covers the eyes. This is a niqab over her head and an abaya over her body. They are very common for women in Iran. Coop picked up his pile of clothes and took his turn in the adjacent room. He emerged wearing a collarless white shirt, white trousers, and a long white cloak secured around the middle by a cummerbund. Yasser reached into a case and came out with a brimless, short, rounded cap. He placed it on Coop's head. This is a kufi cap. Many men wear these in Iran. This is author Mike Paul reading from his newest book, She's Missing, which is the second book in his series, Missing. And in this section, he's just told us about what uh, the these two characters are disguising themselves, so to speak. And I'm trying to imagine the difference in a, this is the item over her head is N-I-Q-A-B over her head, niqab, and then an abaya over her body. Because I happened to try on a burqa once, and it was rather unsettling to be enclosed in a clothing item like that. Um, So did you have any experience, or this was your research, I'm supposing? Yeah, I, I had no experience with it. Of course, you know, like you, well, you've experienced actually in person, but, you know, obviously we've all seen them. And here in America, whenever you see a woman covered in black from head to toe, you just assume it's a burqa. So I thought this was interesting that there's a, a big distinction between a burqa and uh, and these other items, a niqab and an abaya. So it's just kind of an interesting thing that I was able to throw in there. Well, I've mentioned the uh, food items, the clothing items, and these are all interesting local color, but I don't mean to imply that there isn't a lot of action in this book. So I would like you to read from a section in your book, and you'll have to set this up because there's another character in there, Farzad. Yeah, let me just set up. They get to uh, they get to Iran um by this facilitator who also appeared in the first book. Uh, His name is uh, Farzad, and uh, he gets them in and out of of Iran, but um, he gets injured in a, uh, when they have a kind of a showdown with the uh, Iraq, excuse me, the uh, Iranian police, and he gets injured. So now Coop, or excuse me, now Zoe is driving the limo that they use to trans, uh, transfer themselves from Iraq to Iran and now back to Iraq. So I'll read you uh, uh, this little section where uh, Zoe is trying to get them back from Iran into Iraq. Okay. The limo's headlights illuminated a sign designating the upcoming border between Iran and Iraq. Zoe pulled to the side of the road. Coop grabbed the Iraq license plates and the screwdriver from the glove compartment and ran around the limo, exchanging them for the Iran ones. The road approaching the border was straight, wide, and flat. Zoe turned off the headlights and punched the accelerator to the floor. The limo's speed maxed out at 121 miles an hour. The Iranian border guards didn't spot the limo until it was only 20 yards away. They dropped the wooden gate arms and held up their hands to signal a stop. But Zoe kept her foot to the pedal, turned on the high beams and headed straight for them. When the guards realized the limo wasn't going to slow down, they took out their automatic weapons and began firing. The outer layer of armored metal absorbed the bullets and the reinforced glass cracked but it kept the slugs from entering. So he blasted through the gates and kept driving toward the Iraq border crossing. This is Mike Paul, and he has written various books, his latest uh, two series books, Missing, and he's reading from She's Missing. So um, do you have any closing words you'd like to say, Mike, about this latest book of yours? 
I I actually had more fun with this book than the original one or the the first book in the series because I hadn't anticipated really writing um, a second book or or even a third, and so I finished that first book and I kind of smugly put you know the the uh, the computer to bed and thought that uh, I, I was done with it. But a good friend of mine said, uh, "Mike, you can't you can't leave this here. You <laughs> you you left this up in the air. We want to know what happened to Zoe after she disappeared, and we want to know about some of these other characters. So you have to write another book." So I wrote this, and I was really happy the way it turned out. And then my friend uh, again, of course, he read the end of this book and. This book was <laughs> definitely set up for another book. And he said, okay, where's the third book? So uh, right now I am um, just uh, about halfway through the third and final series, the missing series. And um, in this third book, I plan to kind of put it to bed. In other words, we'll stay tuned, Mike. <laughs> My guest has been Dr., because he was a dentist, Dr. Mike Paul, who has been writing uh, spy thrillers, and the one we were talking about today is entitled She's Missing. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Thank you. After a break, I'll be talking to another Chico writer, a retired professor, Curtis DeBerg. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Retired Chico State professor Curtis DeBerg is a lifelong fan of the Minnesota Twins, and his third book is a tribute to two men who loved Cuba and baseball. That would be Baseball Hall of Famer Tony Oliva and Ernest Hemingway, who was a baseball fan. The story is part yarn, part fantasy, and part truth. The title of this historical fiction is Ernest Hemingway and Tony Oliva, a tale of how the great writer helped the great baseball player. Curtis DeBerg, welcome. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having me today. Now, we know about Ernest Hemingway from your previous book. You wrote a lovely coffee table book, Traveling the World with Hemingway. And so we got to know Hemingway in that book. And then in this book, um, you say some of it is true and some of it use is your fantasy. So to give us an example of uh, the background of your new book, I'd like you to tell us how you start off. You start off telling us what was going on in the summer of 1960. Oh, yes. Uh, the summer of 1960, uh, um, I would have been actually four years old at that time. <laughs> but in, in not, the summer of 1960, uh, Ernest Hemingway was beginning a steep decline into depression and into, uh, um, he was very morose about the fact that he couldn't remember much anymore and he was beginning to uh, lose his mind actually. And at the same time, there was a young ball player named Tony Oliva who was, uh, was playing baseball in Cuba, but he wasn't getting recognized by the scouts uh, that normally would have hired or assigned him to a baseball contract earlier because he played out in the hinterlands of his district called Pinar del Rio. And so uh, the stage in summer of 1960 
both men, Hemingway and Oliva, had a love for Cuba because Hemingway lived in Cuba at the time. And Tony Oliva, of course, uh, his entire family is from Cuba. And my fantasy was to have these two men meet one another and have Hemingway assist Tony Oliva in getting a uh, getting his travel visa to come to the United States to play professional baseball. Well, you know, this could have happened. I don't think it's likely, but uh, it could happen, and it does in your book. <laughs> you know, that Hemingway. Uh, the, the, Tony Oliva uh, would likely not have met Hemingway. What would have likely happened is uh, Hemingway may have met Oliva's uh, father. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, with Hemingway being an avid baseball fan, he was a fan of the Chicago White Sox and somewhat of a fan of the Yankees. Uh, but my my inspiration for my fantasy here was to have Manolin, the little boy and the man, old man in the sea, have a connection with Hemingway's sons who came to play baseball during the summers in the early 1940s. And so Manolin, who was a key uh, character in this book, I bring him to life by being the son of one of the Hemingway's servants who worked at the Hemingway home called the Finca Vigia. So you were inspired by one of Hemingway's books. It was an award-winning book, Old Man in the Sea. And you take one of yeah. the characters from that book and put it in your story. Exactly. Now um, you, you tell us in the background that, um, Hardly anybody over the age of 20 would have attracted the attention of baseball scouts. And good grief, I didn't know that you were over the hill at 20. So this in the Believe it or not, that's still true today. If you're not signed uh, to a professional contract by now, it'd be your early 20s. But, uh, you know, baseball talent is pretty easy to, uh, to recognize early based on a, a youngster's ability to hit a baseball or to throw it. And uh, unless you have a God-given talent of being able to throw a ball over 90 miles an hour when you're 17 years old, or if your uh, specialty is hitting, if you can't hit the ball for power or for uh for consistency to all parts of the ballpark, you won't get recognized. So uh, young Tony Oliva uh, was recognized as being a very good hitter, but by the time he was recognized, he was really too old uh, to be signed by any professional baseball teams. And that's where this young, this man called Papa Joe Cambria, who was a wonderfully talented scout for the Washington Senators, who later became the Minnesota Twins, Papa Cambria, Papa Joe Cambria actually discovered uh, Oliva, and this is the true part of the book. Uh, he needed some way to convince the twins to sign him because he was at least two or three years older than the twins would have preferred. And there's no way the owner of the twins would have signed Oliva had the owner known that he was over 20 years old. It was just not going to happen. And that's where Hemingway comes in. Uh, I had Hemingway. Uh, become a friend of Papa Joe Cambria. And they actually went to the ballpark in Havana. And the team that Oliva played for was invited to play against the Havana Sugar Kings in my story. And Papa Hemingway and Papa Cambria attend this game where Oliva hits the ball incredibly well, but he's got a problem. He has a hard time catching balls. And so um, uh, again, this is all true. Uh, everything I've told you is true, except for the fact that it's unlikely that Hemingway ever knew Papa Joe Cambria, or if he had, uh, nor had he probably come into contact with the Oliva family. Uh, so that, that that's where I got the idea for the book is to combine the uh, the two gentlemen and having a common interest in uh, in getting Oliva to play for the Twins. Well, let me remind listeners that you know, the title of your new book is Ernest Hemingway and Tony Oliva, a tale of how the great writer helped the great ball player. And the author is Curtis DeBerg. Now, I'd like you to read uh, a little bit from the um, from your book, the background that you give us, what was going on at this time. Would you read a couple of paragraphs from your book on the, in the background? Sure, sure. Uh, Fidel Castro had ousted dictator Fulgencio Batista on January 1, 1959. 
and Oliva feared that there would never be another chance to improve his family's financial condition in pursuit of his dream. So, just one week before the Bay of Pigs invasion on April 17, 1961, the shy, mild-mannered Oliva said a tearful goodbye to his extended family and boarded a flight to a strange new country. Oliva was part of the last group of Cuban baseball players allowed to try out for U.S. teams. On April 9, 1961, he flew to Mexico City with several other ballplayers, where they needed to secure a travel visa to enter the U.S. before traveling on to Florida. He couldn't predict when he might see his family again. Castro had told the ballplayers, if you want to go and continue your career in the United States, you are free to go. But if you stay here, you're going to stay for good. This is author Curtis DeBerg, and his book is Ernest Hemingway and Tony Oliva, a tale of how the great writer helped the great ball player. You know, it's funny that the first time I heard of Tony Oliva, he was the answer to a crossword puzzle. And so I had heard of him in that regard, but uh, I'm not even sure after reading your book that that was his name. I mean, that's how he's known well, as Tony well, Oliva. The, the mystery to this day, known only to the Oliva family, is what is his real name? In order for him to get a travel visa to the U.S. and to have his age be younger than he really was, he had to use his younger brother Antonio's information. So using Antonio's birth certificate, Oliva got a, a travel visa using Antonio's younger age uh, uh, passport and visa to come to the U.S. in order to really kind of pull the wool over the eyes of the Minnesota Twins, who... Uh, who signed him with the belief that he was only 19 going on 20 rather than 22 going on 23. Now, Nancy, I've got to add, I went to Cuba in January of this year. And one day I had my driver take me out to Pinar del Rio, the region where Oliva's family still lives. And with a little asking around, we actually were invited to Tony Oliva's youngest brother's home uh, just outside of the uh, town in which Tony was born. And I had the great pleasure of actually telling Tony Oliva congratulations for his induction into major uh, into baseball's uh, Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I'm sure I can't imagine anything more exciting for you having written this book. And you were able to spend like an hour and a half with him. Um, and you, in fact, have a photograph, and I did enjoy the photographs in your book. Oh, you thank you. Photographs of these various people in your story. Who were some of the, so I mentioned just now, you have a photograph of you with Tony Oliva. Yeah, it's pronounced Oliva, and uh, he, uh, I went to spring training in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, you know, I'm hoping all the people in Fort Myers are doing okay after Hurricane oh, yeah. Ian. But the Minnesota Twins have spring training in Fort Myers. And so in 2018, uh, in March, I actually went on spring break when I was still a professor at Chico State. Uh, I went to Fort Myers and um, I, by chance, was able to meet Tony Oliva and he and I had a brief conversation and I told him how much I had appreciated the book that had been written by him by Tom Henninger, which is the authoritative biography. And Tony and I chatted a bit and he agreed to sign my book and mm -hmm. uh, you have a photograph of that is signing your I, book. I had yeah. no idea I'd be going to Cuba at that point and, <laughs> uh, and meeting his family. <laughs> it was fortuitous at best. And you have uh, other photographs in your book of some of the people who play a role in your story. And we don't really know, because you say some of it you have made up, some of it is fantasy, but some of it is true. So, for example, in your story, Papa Hemingway and Tony Oliva actually meet, but who knows if that ever happened? Probably not. Yes. And then um, you have this thing, place like a bar where people would get together. And, of course, we know Hemingway liked to get together in bars. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the name of the bar that they met in in my story is the Floridita which Hemingway always went to, and he made famous the drink, the Papa Doble, 
which was rum with unsweetened grapefruit juice because Hemingway did not like sweet drinks, but he loved double shots of rum with unsweetened grapefruit juice and a little bit of maraschino, not a maraschino cherry, but a, a little bit of cherry uh, juice in there. And uh, uh, Papa Joe Cambria also loved to drink. And the fact that I had these two meeting because they both had a love for baseball gave me the chance to introduce Tony Oliva as a cousin to Manolin of the old man in the sea. So <laughs> that's how I became creative. And uh, the cousin uh, to Tony Oliva was the little boy who was featured in uh, uh, in Hemingway's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book. And of course, oh, man Hemingway in the sea. went on to win the Nobel Prize. Now, you also have a photograph of Ernest Hemingway in 1958 as a younger man. Yeah. Yeah. Before all this began to unroll, you have a, pace, a photograph of the baseball scout, Papa Joe Cambria, that you tell yeah. us about. Nice photograph of him. And so we uh, get involved in your story, and we're wondering all along as you're reading that some of it may not be true. But you, for example, have a photograph of um, Tony, and in this plaque, it says Tony Pedro Oliva Lopez. So, <laughs> yeah, get to the, the, the Lopez part. I was going to explain that, but I thought, man, it's it's going to be too confusing. Um, yeah, the official the official name uh, that families adopt uh, it's a matriarchal society. So the last name uh, of boys uh, goes to the mother's side of the family. So the Lopez part is his mother's name, the, his mother's family name, and so. By introducing Lopez, I thought I would further, uh, you know, mess things up. So the key is Tony Antonio, uh, Tony Pedro Oliva is the uh, name that he chose to go on the plaque for his Hall of Fame plaque. Um, my guess is that his name really is Pedro, but he ultimately adopted the name Tony just because Tony um, is easier for Americans to say. Um, uh, it's more Americanized. And uh, it also is consistent with with what appeared on his uh, on his uh, travel visa. Well, this is a fun read, Curtis. And uh, let me tell people again the title of your book. This is your third book, Ernest Hemingway and Tony Oliva, a tale of how the great writer helped the great ball player. Thank you. The author is Curtis DeBurn. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you so much, Nancy. I enjoyed it. I would also like to thank my first guest author Mike Paul, who's written a new book in his mystery thriller series, She's Missing. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.